0: Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name, and welcome to this part of our service. It's good to see you all here. A few of us missing, I think. Probably a little sickness still going around, but uh, I guess it's that time of the year. Turn with me to James 1. We're going to finish up a uh, a little bit of a series we've been looking at the last several times I I preached, and uh, that has to do with the, the verses in the James 1, 26 and 27. We're going to read those verses again here this morning. If any man among you... I'm sorry, let's start at verse 25. "...but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed." If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, we uh, picked these verses apart a little bit, and we talked about how true religion will be free of hypocrisy. We looked at that. We also talked about pure religion, true religion, um, being concerned with um, visiting the fatherless and widows. And we talked about what that might look like. And today we want to hit on this last phrase about keeping himself unspotted from the world. And I have to admit, this this particular sermon I probably struggled with putting together more than any I have in quite some time. Simply, probably, mostly because I thought, well, you know, let's um, let's just kind of do a word search on where all the the New Testament or the Bible addresses the world and the Christian relating to the world, and I was simply overwhelmed. Um, practically every epistle in the uh, in the New Testament deals pretty thoroughly with this, and it's a theme that lies throughout the entire Bible. You have God's people, and you have the world, and that thing has been there. Has been much instruction given on that in the Word of God, to the point that I can't possibly do justice to the to the topic this morning. And so, we're just going to poke around that here a little bit, and hopefully, hopefully, we can learn a few things. So the world here is referred to in this particular um, passage of scripture. I'm sure we understand is referring to a universal system that is diametrically opposed to God. It's not talking about the birds and the trees and and uh, the flowers. It's not talking about that world. It's talking about a world system. And these verses would lead us to believe that we can we can have what. James here calls a defiled religion, if we allow this world to spot us. I don't know what you think of when you think of the world defiled, but when something is defiled, the thing or the whatever it is that's defiled is of much less value because it is marred, it is sullied, it is spoiled, and the original use of the product or whatever it is is either greatly reduced or it is rendered useless. And I think we'll all agree here that uh, the world has a very nice way of defiling religion, does it not? And we don't want that to happen. <clears throat> the word spotted also would give us the idea that the defilement would not necessarily be terribly intense. It's just spots. Um... I don't know what you think of whenever you think of spots, but uh, I had to think of uh, Delvin's little illustration here a few months ago when he had a piece of paper up here, if you remember that, and he held it out and there was a little dot in the middle of that paper. And his question was, what do you see? And um, a few of the children, if I recall right, said, well, they just see a piece of paper. Nobody nobody necessarily said that they saw the dot on the paper. And... uh Delvin's point that he was making that day, if I remember correctly, is that, you know, our, we, we tend to be, we tend to focus on this little problem that this paper has when the, the majority of the paper is still quite useful. And I can't remember what point he was making, but it was something to that particular effect. However, there's another way of thinking about that thing. If the dot would have gotten too big, it would have indeed rendered that paper relatively useless. I don't know how I uh, I don't know how you would have felt if I would have wore a white shirt here this morning. I wore a gray one instead. But I would have went out my house and uh, the dog would have just jumped up on me with his muddy paws and just put a big old, you know, how dogs can do, right over my white shirt. And I said, "Well, that's fine. Things happen like that." Just came to church and preached and stood up here and acted like those spots were not there. I have a feeling that's all you would have seen this morning, is those silly spots on my shirt. And why is that? It's because it just soiled and marred the shirt. I mean, if you're like me, um, when a person gets up and his collar is like this, that's all I can see. It's like put put the collar inside. And I know the poor person doesn't know it, and it probably happens to me occasionally. But it's all I can see. And and why is it? It's because it doesn't belong there. As a matter of fact, I sat behind a brother here a little while ago that he walked into church, and his entire collar was over his suit collar. And I looked at that, and I'm like, is this a new trend? Is this like a new thing that we do this now? And... Uh, the next time I saw him, it was where it belonged, and so I assumed that that was not the way it should have been that Sunday. But it was like, I just couldn't believe it, you know, I was like, this is really out of order here, you know, or whatever. And, and to be completely honest with you, one of the reasons I don't wear white shirts very often is simply for that reason. I, it, it, it's like when I wear a, a, a white shirt, the ketchup bottle jumps off the table at me. And it's just, it's just bound to happen. So, uh, that's, that's why I, I don't very often. And that's why I will never wear a, uh, or own a pair of white pants. Because I know that they would be clean for about two minutes after I own them, probably. So anyway, we have the spots. And, and the point I'm trying to make is, spots are very distracting. And if you have defi- a religion that is, that is spotted by the world, it is extremely repulsive and repugnant it 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 it, it's not it's not doing anything for for us or our testimony the other thing i see here is the responsibility is largely on me it says keep himself unspotted from the world i am primarily responsible to avoid getting these spots on me just like I am largely responsible uh, I would say if the dog jumps on me and I don't change the shirt that's that's my problem not really even necessarily the dogs I would say it's my issue and I would say that's that is it is it is our responsibility to make sure that that's not happening to us as far as the world spotting us turn with me yet to James 4 verse 4 this is another, another verse here that James uh, talks very directly to this subject. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now that is strong language. Um, now, now let's think through this a little bit. He doesn't say if you are of the world you are an enemy of God. That's not what he says. He says if you are a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And furthermore, he says you are even an adulterer. That is extremely strong language. Let's think through that a little bit. So um, if you found out this morning that I took one of the ladies in this congregation, my wife's not here this morning, so if I took one of the ladies here and I went out to eat with her, would that be out of order? Totally out of order. I, I sure hope you think that would be out of order. And But all we did is we went out to eat together because we're friends. Completely out of order. That's basically what this verse is saying. I, I in some ways, would be in... in. You could think of it as, as actually being unfaithful to my wife by doing such a thing. I'm married to my wife. I have no business taking another woman out to eat. Absolutely no no, no business doing that at all. And basically, what James is saying here to us is that if we are just a friend of the world, we become enemies of God. We are, after all, the church is Christ's bride. And if we're keeping company with the world... How do you think that makes Christ feel, and I think we know the answer to that so those are those are a few things here that um, that we can conclude from these few verses. I'd like to now move into um, how do we exactly define what the world is and, and again, <laughs> this is where things in my mind shouldn't be murky, but they are murky for some reason. And, and let's just kind of um, let's just kind of uh, think through this, and uh, perhaps the reason they are we believe them to be murky is because we we live in the world, and to some degree we have to engage with the world, and sometimes those lines become a little fuzzier than we wish that they were. But I, I question if they'd have to be as fuzzy as they are. I don't know if you've ever referred to a thing or a person as worldly. Uh, maybe you, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But um, I think I have already that that particular thing or or activity would be worldly, or that person lives like a worldly person. And and I have some idea what, at least in my mind, that looks like. I would say that uh, well, let's just turn to Second Corinthians. Um, this verse here, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a few verses here that um, that bring a, um, a uh, maybe some clarity to this. Again, as I talked about, the Bible's chalked full of uh, of warnings to God's people about separating themselves from the world and so on. So if you go to 2 Corinthians, oh I'm in 1 Corinthians, it would be helpful to get to 2nd. And if we start at verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And I don't know that I have to necessarily say a lot more on those verses. They are very easy to understand. Paul says, do we understand that there is an unequal yoke that should not be. And that unbelievers and believers, righteousness and unrighteousness, Christ and Belial, um, all these things, they are diametrically opposed. You can't bring the two together. Totally, totally opposites. So what is a, what is a worldly person? Well, here's a definition that I, I wrote up, and I'll see whether you agree with it. It is a person who orders his life according to the popular consensus of the majority in the age in which he lives with little or no consideration to give given to what God would say would have to say on any subject he is selfish he is self centered and self preservation and happiness in the moment is his primary objective i, I don 't know if that's a if that is a a um, a realistic definition or not, but that's what I kind of, um, kind of settled on. When I wrote that, I had to think of another thing, and that is our Constitution here in the United States holds a um, holds a saying that goes like this: We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable. Rights and that word in unalienable simply means unable to be taken away, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you you agree with that? Well, I certainly agree with the fact that I think all men are created equal. That I certainly agree with. But are we truly endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? If that's true, Job had a terrible life, absolutely horrible. His life was not, at least the segment we have in our Bibles, was anything but the picture of the pursuit of happiness. Now, I want to say, we enjoy that, don't we? We enjoy whenever we we live um, in a place of liberty, where we enjoy life, and where we can largely lead a happy life. We enjoy that. But I'm not sure it's fair to say that that has been endowed by our creator, and it is our right. I think that is a worldly perspective. Rather, I would present this. I would rather say that all men are created equal and are given the opportunity to experience true happiness and liberty by relinquishing their wills to the will of their Lord and accepting the path in life that God assigns to them, which will bring the most glory to his name. Um, I think that's that seems reasonable, that that would be the difference between a worldly perspective and a godly perspective. Um, Job said, after all these things were taken away, he said, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what he said. I was also interested as I read the, I pulled the Mennonite Encyclopedia off my shelf just to see what, The Mennonite Encyclopedia calls worldliness, and I'm going to read it to you here. Worldliness, a term not unique to Mennonites, but very common among them, is used to designate attitudes, tendencies, and behavior influenced by the world, thought of as being an evil system of life and conduct opposed to Christ. World is used frequently in this sense in the New Testament. The two most common passages used in regard to worldliness, or in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world. And in 1 John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A major difficulty has been that of identifying precisely what world is and therefore what worldliness is. I kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier, that sometimes we grapple with that. And I, and I think another reason we, we grapple with that, perhaps, is because the Bible is written in such a way that it assumes that a Christian is as interested in identifying and avoiding the world as what God is, because after all, we're, we're born again, we're born from above, we have the new nature, and so therefore, we're interested too. And so the, the, the Bible gives a lot of principles of what the world is, but it really relies on every generation to identify what that is in his generation and in his personal life. I'll keep on reading here. The temptation not always avoided has been to emphasize aspects of culture as worldly because they are easily identified. While overlooking the deeper aspects of worldliness... Such as perhaps materialism. Nevertheless, the problem of worldliness has been and remains a major concern for all earnest Christians who endeavor to follow their Lord closely in true discipleship. It requires all the resources of grace and insight to master it. And I guess I just have to say amen to that. I thought, uh, I thought that was a, a fair analysis of, uh, of the world and our endeavor to identify it and, and, and grapple with it. As I reflected on on um, my time here on earth and, and uh, identifying with a church that is concerned that we do keep ourselves unspotted from the world, I wonder sometimes if our current challenge in our generation is to set back on our laurels And basically be happy that the world has been identified for us by previous generations and not do such a great job of identifying what that might be in our generation. And perhaps we struggle uh, with uh, properly evaluating current trends in our generation and identifying them as worldliness. Well let's uh let's go to first John two now. This is probably the most concise biblical definition of what the world is that we have in our Bibles. First John two fifteen. It goes like this love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Alright? So again, very easy to understand. We shouldn't love the world system, we should be alert to it, we should avoid the things that are a result of it or a perpetrator of it. We should be aware of things that subtly ensnare us into the system without us hardly knowing it. And I would just like to say, I think um, I think it's fair to say that as as we evaluate world history that that the the world's norms are constantly changing. And worldly people, quote, quote, always take their cues from whatever is valued as normal and right in their generation. And so um, that's why we had a time in, in our, um, our country's history where abortion was considered evil, but slavery was considered okay. And today it's completely the opposite. Uh, slavery is considered evil, but abortion is considered okay. But it's, 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 it's the world system. It's whatever the general consensus is of that particular generation is, is what is considered right and good and, and acceptable. Verse 16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. So now how do we, uh, how do we go? Uh, thinking about that, how do we identify when something is the lust of the flesh? Well, wouldn't it be that the lust of the flesh would be indulging excessively in things that appeal to the fleshly appetites alone? All right, you know we were all created with fleshly appetites. We live in the flesh, and we have appetites. Uh, likely, most of you ate breakfast before you came, and the reason you did that is because your fleshly appetite said, "I'm hungry." And it's going to be a wild at dinner and the preacher could be boring, so I'm going to eat some breakfast. That's likely what you thought, hopefully not part of that, but possibly. But that was a flexible appetite. Now, um, if you would have gorged and ate like crazy and and whatever, now you're engaging in worldliness. You had a worldly breakfast, okay? Nothing to do with you, about with what you had. It's how much you ate and and um, and you overdid it, all right? The Bible calls that gluttony. That's worldly. Another one that's another easy one is uh sexual gratification. Um, the Lord made us this way and and uh, there's a there's a, a place and a time for that right but in today's world it is it has been it has been normalized and encouraged in very ungodly ways and we we well know about that now, i've been uh, reading some books here lately on uh, on psychology, and I was interested. Um, I think I maybe knew this, but I was, it was once again um, ingrained in my mind. This man by the name of Sigmund Freud, who was considered the father of modern psychology, and probably his uh, his ways are uh, are far too much followed by Christian psychology too, likely. But he proclaimed in his day that a lot of people's problems was because of suppressed sexual desire. And if we could just get rid of that, everybody could just do what he wanted to do, and he wouldn't have to be constrained by biblical values. We'd be so much better off. And I think it would be fair to say that Sigmund Freud is probably could be called the father of the sexual revolution, which kind of came to head in the uh, in the '60s. And we are our society today that we live in is reaping an, a horrible. Um, harvest because of those um, normalizing of things that are sin, God calls sin. And we could go on and on, but you get the point. When we indulge in a way in fleshly appetites that God says you should not, we we are now living in the lust of the flesh. And I don't know if this fits here or not, but um, it just kind of comes to me now. It is interesting that our church and i 'm not against this at all in fact i 'm totally for it, but we have we have taken a a complete abstinent position against alcoholic beverages we we have, and i'm i 'm okay with that. However, it is of some interest to me that um, in our history, there was a lot of our people back hundred and fifty years ago, for sure, and probably even even more recently than that that uh, owned stills um, made whiskey and um, all these things all right and and would have recreationally um, drank alcoholic beverages. It was not until the course of the world went after temperance in the twenties that it effectively um, it effectively dried out the church too, all right? The Mennonite church uh, jumped on that, I hesitate to call it a bandwagon, but that's kind of what it was in the 20s, and um, and they said, we're against this too. Now, what has happened since then is, um, is we, we've continued there, all right? The world has gone back to drinking pretty heavily, and, and we've said, no, we think it's a good idea not to do that. Now, I say this carefully. But the Bible never condemns drinking. It condemns drunkenness, see. And we, but, but we have gone abstinent on that. But I wonder if we don't engage in the lust of the flesh on things like eating, I'll just say it, in ways that are after the course of the world. How about the lust of the eyes? You know, I think the lust of the eyes probably refers to the glitz An excess that we as humans are attracted to that further feeds the lust of the flesh. You know, I had to think of Eve there. The the two were kind of combined. You know, she's hanging around the tree, and the 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 serpent says, Well, why don't you look at that? So she did, and when she looked at it and listened to the serpent, oh then she couldn't she couldn't help herself. She took that fruit. And I and I'll say I struggled here again. You know, what What is the lust of the eyes? How would we define that? And if I'm going to be honest with the the Word of God as it is plainly written here, if I do a thing for no other intention other than to appeal to the lust of my eyes, um, it's probably the world. That's probably where we got to come out on it. You know, we struggle here, I think, because we live in a world that um, to some degree we are required to participate in. And our world puts a lot of emphasis on the non-functional, all right? Things that do nothing other than please the lust of the eye. And I would say primarily in our day, clothing is made to appeal to the lust of the eye rather than to cover the body. That that is what I would. That is my conclusion, and I would say that is probably an area that we struggle with. I think we need to be honest with ourselves. You know, I think uh, I think another thing that I, you know, I personally think about anyway, is um, we need to drive cars, don't we? And of course we do. Well, this this world um, designs cars and accessories for cars and trucks and so on that are nothing other than to appeal to the lust of the eye. That's it. it that, that's what it is. That's why people take pictures of their trucks and they, they post them on social media. Why do they do that? It's so you see what they have. It's appealing to the lust of your eye. That's what it is. And there's so many other things. You know, our home decor, etc., etc., etc. You can fill in the blank. The, the bottom line is this. If I am doing a thing and I can't come up with any other reason other than the fact that it looks nice, and that is it, no function beyond that, would it be fair to say that that is lust of the eye? Would that be a fair thing to say? You know, I would say that there is a fine line be, be between godly... Becomingness—that's not a word I know, but I don't know how else to word it—and the lust of the eye. Like, I don't think that we need to be slovenly, all right, um, to um, so we don't appeal to the lust of the eye. But neither—but I think we have to be aware that Satan has a really easy one there to get hold of. How about the pride of life? When I think of the pride of life, I think of people like Nebuchadnezzar. I think of the rich farmer in the Book of Luke. You know, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? Um, I'm going to take it easy, and I'm just going to kick back, and I'm going to build big barns, etc. You know, it's the things of life that I have an inordinate affection for, or that I find satisfaction in that should be (laughs) reserved for God. And I will again say, Just life itself brings many opportunities for pride to creep in, take root. And I think we struggle in many ways uh, in this area. In verse 17 then, John says, "...the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever." And opposite of that, our human tendency, as I believe, is to spend uh, copious amounts of energy and time and money on things that we know will pass away. They're going to go away. Um, you know, uh, someday my farm will not be there anymore. It won't. And none of your houses will either. I don't know if you know that. But they won't be there. And whatever time and energy we're putting in them now is some is completely temporal. Completely. Hebrews 13 14 For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Jesus said once, What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And by implication, I think he's insinuating that the pride of life has an extremely strong pull on us, to the point that there would be people that would make that debate and make the wrong call. They would say, I will give my I will sell my soul for the temporal. That's what I'll do. <coughs> I think this could also be extended to uh, to just the way we think about ourselves, you know, the pride of life. The Bible warns us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And why does it warn us about that? Because our tendency is to think a little more highly of ourselves than we should think. Uh, after all, Wouldn't you say that your opinion and my opinion has been well thought out and um, probably deserve some consideration? um, Maybe that's the pride of life sneaking in. Well, I think it's we do well to consider who actually does control the world. And I have four references I'd like to just refer to. In the temptation in the wilderness, right after Jesus' baptism, Satan proclaimed to Jesus that he would be willing to give him all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus did not dispute that. But he was not interested in the kingdoms of the world. He understood, I believe, Jesus did, that Satan does largely control uh, a lot of the happenings that go on in the world and in the kingdoms of the world. If you go then to John 12.31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world... Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. In the context of this verse, Jesus is talking about his death and the trouble that his soul was experiencing because of it. But the ultimate result of his death and trouble was that the prince of the world was going to be cast out and that there was going to be a force set in place because of his death that would greatly reduce Satan's capabilities to have the... Um, the control of people that he would desire. And I would suggest that that force that was set in place is the Holy Spirit that comes and lives in the life of the believer. Jesus furthermore said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are salt and light. There's something about the believer and his very presence in the world as he goes about keeping himself unspotted from the world that actually preserves the world. Okay? So... um, Jesus goes on to say, you know, if the salt loses its savor, it's worthless, right? And, and and the same the same um uh connotation could be could be here. If we're spotted by the world, what good are we to the world then? John fourteen, thirty, then Jesus says, Hereafter I will not talk with you much, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Again, Satan is referred to as the Prince of the World, and in context Jesus is referring to Satan's evil scheme to have him crucified. And he said, Satan has nothing in me. Much like the verses we read in Corinthians, you know, what, what um, does righteousness and unrighteousness really have to do with each other? And then in, during his trial, those famous words that Jesus proclaimed to um, Pilate there, that his kingdom is indeed not of this world. And he said, I'll tell you what, though, Pilate, he said, if it was of this world, things would be different here today. He said, my servants would be fighting. But because my kingdom is not of this world, I'm here and I'm willing to be crucified. I'd also like to just refer to a number of scriptures that talk about what Satan desires to do with people, to keep them in his control, and largely what the difference is between a worldly person and a godly person. In Ephesians 2, it reads like this, And you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. We read this in our Sunday school, didn't we? Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh. Now here's the, here's the uh, part I want you to pay attention to. Fulfilling the desires, or you could say, fulfilling the carnal cravings of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. All right, we discussed this at some length in our Sunday school, so I'm not sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a lot about it. But just to point out again, the world does have a course; it does have a path; it does have a program; it does have a um, a thing that it follows. And it all boils down to what it calls the spirit of disobedience. You know, in uh, in verse 3 then it says that it fulfills the desires of the flesh and the mind. Alright, I have settled on the fact that after looking at a number of scriptures here that, um, as I studied this, if Satan can control our minds, he has us. That's it. It's It's about the influence of the mind. In Noah's time, right before God sent the flood to destroy the earth, it said the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. That was it. There just was no presence of God in their in their thoughts. In Romans 1, very, very familiar scripture, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a base mind, to do those things which are not convenient. And without going into a lot of detail, you know we live in those days, don't you? I mean, it's always been a little that way. But we live in a time when people are doing a lot of things that are not convenient. And it's because of their reprobate minds. Romans 1 has a long list of, uh, of uh, reprobate things that people do. And then it ends up like this, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they have pleasure in them that do them. Again, I say that Satan understands all he needs to do is maintain the control of a person's mind and he will have those people eating out of his hand. I really believe, again... But the difference between a person of the world and a person that is in Christ is how he thinks about things, how he processes things, how he, how, uh, he conducts his affairs in this world. His decision is based on the eternal rather than the temporal. And I'll give you a little story that, uh, brought this right to the fore in my life here very recently. I was talking with a neighbor that I do uh, quite a bit of business with here. recently, and we were talking about some land right across the road from him that the the, the folks that own this land are, are quite old, and they can't really run the land very well anymore. They're still trying, but not very well, and I have been helping these people the last several years make their hay, and so we make their hay on halves. I get half of it, and they get half of it, and that's just what we've been doing, and I have I have uh, told these folks, these older people, that if they would ever be interested in renting that 120, that they should talk to me. I I could be interested in renting it. Well, as I was talking to this neighbor that lived right across the road from this 120, um, I found out that he really carries a chip on his shoulder about another gentleman in the neighborhood that rents land that's right next to him. All right, he's not pleased with that. To the point that he kind of avoids the man as much as he can. And my wheels got to churn, and I thought, boy, how would that be? He's told me, oh, then the other thing he said, he said, if that land ever comes up for rent, and it's the stuff that I kind of thought in my mind I wouldn't mind renting. He said, I will not let, and he named another neighbor, he said, I will not let them have it. He said, I will bid so high, there's no way, they'll get it. Hmm, boy, this, this conversation is really taking an interesting twist here. So I just, I just put it right out at him. I said, what if I rented that land? Because I wanted to know, would, it, would I be his enemy then? And he said like this, he got this glint in his eyes and he said, I'll rent that land. He said, I'm going to bid so high, I'm going to rent that land. Oh. I went away from that. Um, conversation basically with this conclusion I won't rent that land and and I told him I said you know what I said my relationship with my neighbors is worth far more than that land I don't you know I'd run the land but I will not ruin my relationship with you over that piece of dirt I won't do that and if that's going to cause you a problem I, I, I stand out of the fray now in all fairness if that land comes up for rent and all the neighbors are given an option to, to throw a bid in, would it be wrong for me to put a bid in that, that I would know I would get that ground? Would that be wrong for me to do that? Well, in reality, not. But would it be? Would, I be? would I be following the course of the world? Would I be? Or would it be much better to say, I'll just refrain from that. How, how could I witness to this man of, of, of Jesus and how that I have eternal values if i 'm known to be the highest bidder and i 'm told in today 's world and the the numbers this man was throwing around as you know rent <laughs> it 's big numbers well it 's big numbers let 's put it that way. I just give you that as an illustration of the difference and and, and yeah it 's maybe even a bad illustration because it makes me look like I really am on top of things here but I'm just trying to give you an idea of how we need to process things as, as otherworldly people. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, or, as the New Living Translation says, do not let the world press you into its mold. But be ye transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, our minds need to be renewed. First Peter talks about arm ourselves likewise with the same mind as Christ. And then it goes on to say that in times past our life sufficed us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles who walked in lasciviousness Lus excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they, or the world, thinks it's strange that you do not run with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. And why don't we? Because we have a different mind. We have armed ourselves with the mind of Christ. Again, what is the abominable idolatries? What is the excess of riot? Those are just like, what is that? How's, how do I get that? How do I put that into... My life. How do I how do I get that to the end of my fingers? Another story, I was in a meeting this past two weeks ago, and the man that was kind of the MC of the meeting, uh, he gets up and as a um, as a way of kind of loosening things up or whatever, he begins to talk about um, the Packers playing the Vikings. I know nothing about the Packers or the Vikings. I know which state they come from, other than that, done. I don't know anything about them. But anyway, um, this man, I also know, professes to be a Christian. And he would give some expression of that in some ways, I suppose. But what what I couldn't believe, and this sermon was on my mind as I listened to him, this man knew a lot about the Packers and Vikings. He knew a lot, a real lot. And he sat there for three minutes and gave statistics, and this person's being traded for that person, and this and that, and the next thing. And it was just all over my head. But as I thought about that, I'm like, I don't know. This just seems like in our generation, it sure seems like professional sports, rock stars, these types of people are the idols of our day. And I couldn't help but think, is this the excess of riot that we're told to avoid? Another another one that is very fresh on my mind And and I think we have been extremely um, challenged and probably not even have done so well in the last number of years. And that is this thing of politics. Up in Canada right now, I'm sure you're familiar, um, they have this truckers thing going on. I don't know what all it is, but they're driving big trucks and honking horns and waving flags. And they're protesting um, the, the things that they dislike about the... Government, um, the government mandates regarding COVID. And I will say, there's a bit of understanding from my point of view. It does seem over the top, and I can understand their angst and, and despair. I can understand that. However, I had a minister from one of our churches call me from Canada this very week, expressing his anxiety if there are people in his church participating in this. That, that's of this world. I, I'm sorry, I, I understand the, the frustration. But I hope we all understand we have no business lobbying in that manner. I hope we get that. Second Corinthians 4.3 But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the eyes of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, shine unto them. I pondered that verse a long time. Can Satan actually succeed in stymieing or staying or snuffing out the light of the glorious gospel? This verse says he can. He says, because he blinds the minds of those that believe not. How does he do that? How do you blind a mind? My time is up and I'll, but I'll quickly give you this to think about. I believe in our generation, minds are blinded because they are so full, so full of the things we can, I'll just say it, get on our phones that they are so overwhelmed with all this information, all this Whatever it all is, they don 't even have time to even consider the things of god the the, the things that uh, pertain to life and godliness, you might say i was uh, I was down to um, to Bible school this past week and visited one day, and I sat in on the uh, technology class, and that particular particular day, they were talking about gaming and videos, movies, and the effect that has on people and on their minds. I also listened to a sermon by another person this week who was talking on the subject. And I'll just tell you what he said. I can't say anything beyond it. He said that studies have, have proven that people that play video games, computer games, whatever they all are. Uh, however, the venue is you play these things. That brain scans have shown similar effects to somebody that's on um, high doses of heroin. Okay, their minds are blinded. Their minds are dysfunctional because of the things they are allowing to happen to their minds. I just I just ask you this: Does gaming and movies have any place? in the kingdom of God, does it? Peter says, whereby we are given exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. That verse says it all. You want to escape the the corruption that is in this world? You're going to have to have a changed nature. That's it. We have to have a changed in nature. In uh, Hebrews, the uh, Hebrew writer in chapter 13, he talks about all these people. And we, the Hebrews of faith, we know about that, don't we? One of the last verses, he said, the world was not worthy of these people. Now, what does that mean? What it means is... These people were so otherworldly that the contribution that they could give to the world system was nil. They had nothing to give to the world system. And he says the world was not worthy of them. They sought another country. Friends, I hope that's our testimony. I hope that people can say of us that the world is not worthy of us. We are not participating in the world system. Truly, may God help us to that end. Let's kneel for prayer.